There is only one true god. All others are little G fake imposters and deceivers. The only god has a name. We translated Yao there. He revealed himself to ancient Israel as the creator god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He created everything. Humans rebelled against God, bringing murder, death, labors, and trouble into the world. Angels rebelled against God, mated with humans, thus corrupting our DNA. Humans could not obtain correct positioning or righteousness before God, and undo the sickness, hatred, and pride in eternal death. The law given to Moses only proved how impossible this was. God loves humans so much that he became human to offer a free way back to correct positioning with him. A way to undo the rebellion. Jesus the Christ was God in human form. Jesus was not just a prophet, a teacher, or ancient healer, but is God. God sacrificed his body and blood to bring humans back. God defeated death upon resurrecting from the dead, thus bringing in his kingdom against powers of wickedness. Believe this, and ask God's spirit to come into your spirit and restore your correct positioning in him. Hello everybody, it is Monday, December 3rd, 2018. But not for long. Okay. Now, you always hear me talking about AD 70, AD 70. What happened in AD 70 to the Jewish people, to the temple? The temple was destroyed. We all know about that. And in the works of Josephus, a Jewish historian, he has the whole history of the Jews. Say what you will about Josephus, but he was a Jewish historian who documented a bunch of stuff. Well, the writings sometimes aren't really easy to read because um, they're, they're written, you know, from you know a couple thousand years ago. So I have here in my hand, I don't know if this is still in print. Hopefully it is. It's called Josephus, Thrones of Blood, A History of the Times of Jesus, 37 BC to AD 70, and it's basically uh, what's cool about this little book. It's a Reader's Digest version of it. So you can kind of read it and go, whoa, and kind of understand it in uh, our, you know, vernacular of today. Yes, because the writings of Josephus really are essential to a complete and proper understanding of Jewish thought and history. If you really want to look at Bible prophecy and uh, what happened, and plus it's just... It's just fascinating to see what, what happened to the Jewish people because we're grafted in, right? There's no Jew or Gentile now in Christ. You're grafted in. And the things that happened to Israel in the past were, were our examples for our example, right? So we can't be so cocky to go, well, yeah, it can't happen to us. You know, how many of us, I mean, we've all done this. You you read stuff, you know, you read Jewish history and you go, oh man, how could they have done that? Why did they, you know, if I was living in that day, I would have stuck with Yahweh. I would, you know, no, you wouldn't. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. You know, it's, um, it's amazing. Uh, you know, as, as God's chosen people, how their, their history, how their history went. And then when you're grafted into Christ, how that history actually, you know, pertains to you. 
And so it's important to kind of know what happened to them. And so we do know about 8070. We know the destruction of the temple, but a lot of times we don't know a lot of the details. And that's why a little book like this is good. And I'm going to talk about that today. And if it goes well, if it goes well, maybe I'll go back and talk about things prior to the destruction of the temple, because that's fascinating when you start dealing with the actual Jewish war and the rebels and the type of people that came in. You know, it, it does talk in history about a group of men, the Idumeans, who came in that dressed like women, practiced homosexuality, wore makeup and dresses and stuff, and were brutally violent. It does talk about what we see today as transgenders. It is amazing. And history does repeat itself. You know, there is that famous quote that says, um, in essence, those who refuse to acknowledge history or no history are bound to repeat it. So it's, it is important that we understand what happened in the past when I was a police supervisor and I was hiring a bunch of people or promoting people and I was in charge of the police academy at the time. So we did a lot, a lot of hiring when I was a, uh, I was a supervisor, a manager in uh, personnel and training and I was in charge of all of that. And one of the things, you know, when someone would come up for promotion and I, they would be interviewing uh, with me, one of the things I would look at is their past performance. How, how did they perform as a policeman in the past or as a detective in the past, you know, or as a sergeant in the past? How did they perform? Because their past performance would be indicative of their future performance. See? If they were a slug and they were lazy or got in a lot of trouble and had lack of uh, judgment in the past, they're probably going to do the same thing in the future. And I made a mistake one time. I was a supervisor and I um, <clears throat> I basically hired a friend of mine to work in the schools. He was a police officer and he, he was a beautiful person, very nice person, but he was uh, known to be lazy known to be lazy. And, um, but I just felt that he needed, he actually needed the right job and the right, you know, kind of situation to kind of boost him up. And then he'd be able to get promoted. And so he was a friend of mine. And, and I remember I picked him for this assignment and my boss said, if you pick this guy, you're stuck with him. That's your decision. That's your deal. And I go, he's not going to let me down. You know, he's a friend of mine. He's not gonna let me down. He's going to change. We've talked, we've had long talks. So I hired him for this position and sure enough, he let me down and he was very lazy and, uh, you know, and so I owned that. And so now I had to deal with it for a, a while. And so I learned my, my lesson about that, uh, that really past behavior is indicative of future performance. Unless Jesus Christ changes your heart, right? But, you know, I'm talking about a worldly sense, not, not the Christian sense. So it's important that we understand what happened in the past to the Jewish people. That's why we read the Bible. We read those biblical stories of the Jewish history. We understand these things. So I'm going to take this little book and go over that and, and just, I'm going to talk about two days before the fall of Jerusalem. We're going to go two days. We're going to go August 8th, 19, 19, <laughs> AD 70. I hope it was a 1970 because, oh my gosh, we've got a long ways to go. AD 70, August 8th, it fell on August 10th. So we're going to go two days prior and just uh, see what Josephus says. This is kind of a Reader's Digest version, okay? I'm not going over the um, the actual writings of Josephus because uh, we'd be here forever, and it's long and, yeah, arduous. 
but worth the read if you can. So um, anyway, this particular thing that I have in my book called jo- in my hand called Josephus Thrones of Blood is, um, like I said, it's a, a readable narrative and it happens just to center around the times of Christ. Now, Josephus work go, works go way back. It's the whole history of the Jews, Jews. But this is just the the history and times centered around where Jesus is. What we would be interested in, you know, as as Christians at this point. So from like 37 BC to AD 70, right now, if you're interested in it, it is published by Barbour Publishing. B a r b o u r. I think Barbour publishes a bunch of little, little books like that. So I don't even know if it's still in existence or not. Um, I got this from my mother years ago, but it's kind of a cool thing. I don't even know what the date is on it. So let's go and uh, kind of look at this. And the reason why I'm doing this is just well because I think it's important. That's why. Quit arguing with me. Okay, here we go. What we have to we have to understand before I start talking about this is there was a whole lot going on. I mean, I mean a lot. There's I would take numerous shows to go from the beginning of the Jewish War, like 60 A.D. to 70 A.D. A whole lot, but it's really really important stuff too. So I may do you know future shows on that. But I'm just start with the destruction. So I'm going to start with uh, the temple gates, okay? This is two days before the fall of Jerusalem. And it's important for us because we wanna know what happened back then, but we all wanna know what's going with on with us today because history repeats itself and we need to know what happens. You will find that in that day in the Jewish war, there were many, many false prophets and there were many, many false ideas and there were many, many uh, things that would make them go sideways and there were many, many false leaders and there were many, many men that came to the city that pretended that they were going to defend them against the Romans and yet turned against them and ripped them off. You know, they were bad shepherds, kind of like what you see today. And like I said, I mentioned before, there was transvestitism uh, clearly in there. Uh, there was, oh, there was all kinds of stuff. So you, you oh, it's signs importance in the sky. A lot of things that are repeating now that you can see and hopefully you know, we can make some ties and go, okay, if it happened, then it may it may be happening now also. And we may be very, very close, Lord willing, and I hope. So let's start with this. Let's start on August 8th. And I'm going to do some reading, so forgive me. So I'll, I'll try to do the best to read to you and not bore you to death. But on August 8th, there's two legions completed their banks and their battering rams were set against the western side of the inter- temple so the so the romans that's the other thing i'll do i'm gonna keep talking in between my reading so i don't just bore you reading i'm gonna i'm gonna give you the brother kapow insight the romans had already breached the gates they're already in jerusalem titus is the the one coming against jerusalem titus does not want to destroy the temple he just wants to put down the Jewish rebellion. There's a war. There's a Jewish war. The Jews rebelled against Rome and they're in war. The Jews thought God was going to deliver them like God had delivered them in the past. But the Jews didn't realize that God had had prophesied, had said, no, I'm going to destroy you because I'm divorcing you because you are constantly in rebellion against me, right? But the church, the Jewish church, the, the first century church had already left Jerusalem. Keep that in mind. 
Remember when Jesus said, when you see these, these signs, when you see the army surrounding Jerusalem, get out, get up to the hills. Don't look back. Don't take your cloak. Get, get out. Right. Remember when he said that in Matthew, Mark and Luke prophecy? Well, they, that's what happened. The early church was gone when the persecution happened. It scattered the church. When these things happened, they left. So when we're reading about the Jews in Jerusalem, these weren't, this wasn't the early church. These were the Jews who uh, decided to stay, right? In rebellion to God. And there were millions of them, by the way. So the the Romans had already entered. And so now they have, uh, they have set their battering rams against the Western side of the temple. For the past six days, the strongest of the Roman machines had bombarded the wall to no effect. Now, even the rams failed. So they, they can't seem to get into the temple. I mean, it was built very, very well. So other soldiers had undermined the foundation of the northern gate, removed the outer stone supporting it, but the inner stones continued to hold the weight of the gate. Giving up trying to dig or beat their way in, the Romans brought ladders. So then they climbed to the top of the inner temple's cloisters where the Jews met them in a fierce battle and forced them to retire after a great loss of life on both sides. Okay, Titus, he's the Roman, he became the Roman emperor, Okay, but at the time he is the, uh, Titus is the Roman commander of all the legions coming against Jerusalem. At the time, Titus realized his attempts to square the temple were costing him too many lives and ordered the gates to be set on fire rather than just try to batter them. So the Jews were fighting back and they had a lot of, they had the Idumeans there, they had the Zealots there, they had a bunch of robbers there. They had a bunch of, uh, you know, scumbags there fighting, you know, the Romans. It was a huge rebellion. And then, of course, all the innocent people suffered. And that, remember, this is the holy temple. And that's why I say the temple can't be rebuilt. The land is defiled with blood and death and everything else. It's um, plus there's no priesthood. You can't. It's impossible to do the law that was given to Moses, the Mosaic uh the law of Moses like that, you, it's impossible to do that again. You need a royal priesthood. You need um, undefiled land, you know, the whole bit. So that's why I say these things because it's history. So they're, they're actually attacking the, the holy temple of God at this point because it's, it, it's already been defiled. It already been, you know, there's blood and dead bodies everywhere by this time. You know, I'm just giving you the last two days before the end. So the melting silver on the gates quickly carried the flames to the adjoining cloisters and it burned for the next two days. Can you imagine that? Well, the Romans fired one section of cloister at a time on the following day. Titus ordered the fires extinguished and a path cleared for the army while he met with his six principal commanders. And he gives those commanders. I'm not going to bore you with those names. All right. Um, Some of these men believe the temple should be destroyed no matter what happened, right? Others said it should be destroyed only if it was used as a citadel against them. So Titus decided to try to save it if at all possible. So he was trying to save the temple, but God had other plans. God says, no, I'm, no stone's going to be left unturned. Remember, Jesus says that when they walk out and the disciples go, he's his beautiful temple, isn't it great, you know? And he goes, uh, hey, I say to you that, you know, there's not going to be anything left. And so this is this is the fruition of that, of those prophecies. It was 40 years later after Jesus said that, that this happened. So the next day, there was a great number of Jews 
and they made a sudden sally out of the eastern gate and they attacked the Romans guarding the court of the Gentiles. And Titus sent horsemen to help the guards who were being overwhelmed by the fury of the Jewish attack. And essentially the Jews had to retreat and lock themselves into the inner court of the temple. All right? So this is the holy temple. Keep this in mind. As you think of biblical prophecy and you think about the words of Jesus, you know, where he says, no stone's going to be left uh, standing, you know, and then he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you know, in another uh, chapter, you know, I, I wish you would allow me to, you know, protect you and cover, cover you. But, you know, you, you didn't recognize the time of your visitation. You didn't recognize your God coming down in flesh. So the temple now burns. Titus retired to the Tower of Antonia on August 10th. This is, this is the day, August 10th. And he resolved to storm the temple early the following morning with his whole army, right? So he was going to storm the temple on August 11th. But this is August 10th, right? And this is important because once he had gone from the temple... The Jews attacked the Romans, attempting to put out the fires. As the Jews were being forced back inside the temple, there was a Roman soldier. He picked up some burning material and lifted it up by a second soldier, right? The second soldier, you know, like put him on his shoulders, right? And he set fire to a gold window that led to a passageway on the north side of the holy house. And the Jews set up a loud clamor and ran to defend the temple. So you have some soldiers now who probably, in in all reality, they probably just got tired of fighting with the Jews. They got tired of being attacked and said, I know you want to save it, boss, but we're going to burn this house to the ground. Right? So when Titus had heard of the fire, he ran to the temple with his commanders and several legions of troops. He tried to order the fire extinguished, but guess what? The Roman troops either could not hear his command is that convenient? I can't hear you, boss. Or they chose to ignore it in the heat of the battle. Probably the former. They just, you know, they're tired of getting attacked. So they're going to do, they're going to do it their way. The Jews were uh, losing on all sides while many innocent people in the temple had their throats cut. This is in the temple of God. I keep telling you this. This is the holy, holy temple. They had their throats cut in the temple. So I'm saying it can't be rebuilt there can't be sacrifices reinstituted. It's polluted. And plus there's just a host of other problems, you know, biblically why that can't happen. So it, it's, that's why it's important to understand the history. Dead bodies lay heaped about the altar and the pathway to it ran with blood. This is history. Dead bodies lay heaped around the altar. This is the altar of God, the sacrifice to Yahweh. And it was blood human blood that ran everywhere so it's defiled folks you can't you can't wipe that and clean it and go okay you know it's it's good we can sacrifice to yahweh again you can't build a third temple there and say it's okay it's defiled there's no third temple you could build one but it's not of god you can sacrifice but it's not sacrifices of god christ was the final sacrifice don't get me going unable to control his troops titus entered the burning temple he found the inner room still intact. So this guy named uh, Liberialius was ordered to restrain the soldiers and have the fires put out before they spread to the inner rooms. But nothing could stop the soldiers. <laughs> they were crazy. Titus and his commanders retired when the inner rooms caught fire. They, they gave up. Uh, okay, we can't help it. 
So check this out. The temple was burned on August 10th. Though Titus wanted to attack it on the 11th, it ended up being burned on August 10th. And why is that important? Exactly the same day it was burned by the Babylonians. Ooh, right? You guys heard of the uh, the uh, month of uh, Av, right? The Jewish month of Av. It's that distressed where everything bad happened to them. This is this is that. The Babylonian uh, attack on the temple, 586 B.C., before Christ, 586 BC, was the first time the temple was ultimately totally destroyed. It'd been attacked many times, but totally destroyed. And now here in AD 70, once again, totally destroyed and demolished on the same day. Wow. What's the coincidence? What's the chances of that? So um, between the laying of the first foundation by Solomon... And the destruction during the second year of Vespasian's reign, that's Titus's dad, by the way, was 1,130 years, seven months, and 15 days. You get it? From the time Solomon put the foundation of the temple to the time it was destroyed in AD 70 was 1,130 years it had stood. Seven months and 15 days. Now, from its second building by Haggai, right? Remember that? In the book of, uh, you got uh, the return from Babylon, right? Where Cyrus gives a decree. So from its second building by Haggai in the second year of Cyrus, the king, until its destruction by the Romans, it was 639 years and 45 days. So totally it stood over 1,100 years. And from the time it was rebuilt by Haggai after the Babylonian destruction was 639 years, 45 days. God's merciful, folks. I mean, there's some, there's some big time there, you know, and he, and it wasn't like this was a big surprise. He kept warning and warning and warning, just like he warns us. He just, he warns us warning and warning and warning. We keep going, how long, Lord? How long, Lord? But he's he's merciful. You know, he's long-suffering. The holy house was plundered as it burned. And 10,000 people were slain. 10,000 people, folks. Regardless of age or condition. Didn't matter how old they were or if they were sick or feeble. It didn't matter. The noise arising from the city was immense. The cries of the Roman legions and Jews surrounded by the fires, the mourning of the people, the roar of the fire, all combined in one loud lamentation that reverberated off the mountains around the city. Picture that. The area around the temple became covered with so many bodies that it was impossible to see the ground itself. Those rebellious Jews still alive fought their way out of the temple and down into the city itself while the people who had gathered in the temple fled to the cloisters out of the outer court. At first, the priests took up the spikes that fell from the top of the temple. When they say priests, these are the false priests, the false Jewish priests <laughs> that are trying to defend the city, but they're not of God, right? They're, they're rebellious Jews. They took up these uh, spikes and they tried to use them as darts against the Romans, but they were eventually forced back to hiding places on the 12-foot wide wall of the fire, and two of them, and they give their names, 
threw themselves down into the fire. And so the Romans decided it was useless to try to save the many buildings outside the temple, and they burned everything, including the temple treasury containing the entire wealth of the Jewish nation. Yeah. They, well, they can't put out the fires. And so here's the treasury that has the entire, we'll just burn it. We just, we're done. Yes. The soldiers then went to the remaining cloisters of the outer temple where about 6,000 people had fled. And then they set those cloisters on fire and they killed all 6,000. So there's blood and bodies and carnage everywhere at the Holy Temple. This is bad. This is, this is the fall of Jerusalem. This is it. Um, you got to remember, you know, all these, these people who died, this was at the time of Passover. So there were, I think, I think Josephus later on says, you know, like 2 million people or something that were in the city from outside. They weren't all people who just lived in Jerusalem. They, they were sent to Jerusalem. There was Passover when this, when the rebellion had started it was during Passover time and the gates were locked and they were locked in. That's why Jesus told the uh, the early church, the, his disciples, his followers, when you see these signs get out. Yeah, I mean, there, there was a real practical reason for that. That's not just a spiritual saying. It's a real practical reason when you see these things get out because you don't want to be in Jerusalem when it all goes down. So he provided a way out for them. And so the church was scattered, you know, through persecution and things like that. But uh, there was no biblical Christians in Jerusalem at the fall of Jerusalem, you know. They were they were out because they knew the prophecies. They listened. They watched the signs and they listened. They escaped these things. Just like you and I should be listening and watching the signs so we can escape all this stuff, right? We don't want to be we don't want to be part of this. So let's talk about some signs importance. This is this is interesting. The people had gone to the temple that day out of the urging of a false prophet controlled by the rebels who had promised them signs of their deliverance. You get it? There was a false prophet that led 6,000 people or more to the temple saying that I'm going to show you a sign that God's going to deliver you. Now, what, now what did Jesus say about that? Many false prophets come, many Christ will come, many messiahs will come in my name saying, I am he, I'm in the desert, I'm in the closed room, I'm over here, I'm over here. And what did he say? Don't go after him. It's a very practical, very practical prophecy. Don't follow him. You know why? Because this bad things happen. Don't follow him. Don't follow false prophets. You guess what? But they had ignored, the people had ignored the signs they had already been given of the coming destruction oh man do i need to read that again the people gone to the temple by the urging of some false prophet who promised a deliverance but they had already ignored all the signs they'd already seen about the they already were told had signs it's going to end it's going to end there's destruction oh no oh no we'll just ignore it and we'll listen to some idiot who tells us that's not happening you see history repeating itself yeah i know you do Demons in My Marriage Bed, a true story of spiritual warfare, changed the way my spouse and I conduct spiritual battle and has increased our alertness level to the tactics of Satan. This is an excellent training manual for building a stronger marriage by exposing the tactics your enemies use against you. From all online digital retailers, God bless you all. 
I want to tell you about a project called Mesquite Cafe, and their latest musical release is called Times End. These songs are about dissatisfaction with the current world systems, hope in ultimate salvation, and warnings about apocalyptic destruction coming to the planet. Times End by Mesquite Cafe can be found at digital music stores such as Apple Music, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play YouTube, Amazon, Pandora, Napster, iHeartRadio, and many others. One of the, uh, here's one of the portents. There was a star that resembled a sword. And there was a comet and a comet with it and uh, had stood over the city for a whole year. See, these were signs in the heavens 1900 years ago. Signs in the heavens, signs in the stars and in the skies and in the heavens 1900 years ago. And it's happening again, isn't it? There's all kinds of stuff in the sky, folks. It's happening again. There was a star resembling a sword and a comet had stood over the city for a whole year. Those are portents. But what did the people do? Josephus says they ignored the signs that had already been given of the coming destruction. Even before the rebellion began, and that was um, in the 6080, there had been warning signs. And he goes on, he says, once when great crowds filled the temple for the April 8th celebration of Passover, a great light shone from around the altar and holy house for half an hour during the night. Although some took this as a good sign, the sacred scribes read it as a bad one. At the same festival, a heifer, that's a cow, right? A heifer, a female cow being led to sacrifice by the high priest gave birth to a lamb in the midst of the temple. A cow gave birth to a lamb inside the temple prior to the Jewish war. This ain't made up. This is history. This is Josephus who's documenting history. A cow gave birth to a lamb. That's called a sign, folks. Signs in the skies, a sign in the earth. Signs in the earth. And the eastern gate of the temple, which was so large, you know how large it was? It took 20 men to close it and to bolt it shut. The gate was so large, it took 20 men to close it and to bolt it shut. 20 men. And guess what it did? It opened by itself about the sixth hour of the night. Now, the men of learning believe this meant the security of the holy house had been given up by the temple itself. That the temple itself said, I'm going to open my own gates. There's no more security. Come in and destroy me because that's what God had said was going to happen. See, they saw that. And the gate had opened to receive the enemies of the Jews. So these were some of the signs. A few days after, on May 21st, just before sunset, they saw chariots and soldiers in armor. They were seen running among the clouds 
and surrounding cities. So they look up in the sky and in the clouds above Jerusalem and the surrounding cities, they see soldiers and army in in, um, armor riding chariots. Mm. I would say that's a pretty good sign. Hey, and Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation surrounding Jerusalem, get out. Hey, and if you're on the rooftop, don't go back and grab your stuff. Don't look back. Go, go, leave. And then Luke, he says, when you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, get out. Jesus had warned the early church. And during the feast of the feast of Pentecost, and during the feast of Pentecost, priests going into the inner court at night felt the earth tremble. They felt an earthquake. But they heard a great noise, and guess what they heard? They heard a multitude of people crying, quote, "Let us remove hence." End of quote. In other words, let us go. Let us get out of here. Let us move. Let's, let's, let's go. It's time to leave. Josephus says four years before the war began. So you're talking, you know, 56, 58, something like that. You know, the, that the city was enjoying peace and prosperity. Just four years before the Jewish war began, they had peace and prosperity. Does it remind you of the scripture when they say peace, peace, sudden destruction will appear? History repeats. We have to know what happened. They say Jesus, not our Jesus, not Jesus Christ, but Jesus, the son of Animus, right? Joshua, the son of Animus. He was a plebeian farmer. He was a farmer and he came to the feast And there was peace and prosperity. Remember that peace and prosperity. So this farmer guy comes to the feast where everyone made tabernacles to God in the temper in the temple. Right. So so it looks like what? Sakuth feast of tabernacles. And this guy, this farmer guy, he suddenly began to cry out day and night throughout the city, day and night. Suddenly he just lost his mind. And he says, quote, a voice from the east, a voice from the west. A voice from the four winds, a voice against Jerusalem and the holy house, a voice against the bridegrooms and the brides, and a voice against the whole people, end of quote. So even though he was beaten, he continued his mournful warning. So they didn't want to hear it. You understand they didn't want to hear it, folks? So they, they got to the point where they're just beating him up. He's a plebeian farmer comes to the feast and he just flips out. He loses his mind and he starts saying stuff that they don't want to hear. What are you talking about? We're in peace and prosperity. Nothing that's never looked better. Our economy's great. You know, we got Trump in the White House. What are you talking about? So they, you know, well, we're going to delete your Twitter account or we're going to reduce your, you know, your Facebook uh, outreach. Oh, whatever. We're going to beat you. We're going to beat you down. We're going to marginalize you. Why are you saying this kind of stuff? Yeah. But he just continued his, uh, he just continued his uh, warning. So he was brought before Albinus, the Roman 
procurator. And he was whipped until his bones were laid bare, folks. They whipped him to the bone. And his only words were, woe, woe to Jerusalem. They beat him to an inch of his life. And the only thing he can say is, woe, woe to Jerusalem. So Albinus dismissed him as a madman. But he continued his mourning and he spoke nothing but this lament for seven years and five months. Seven years and five months until the siege. Seven years and five months until the siege. Well, the Kapow radio show started late 2011. I'm talking like November 2011. So really, we didn't start to 2012 because we did our first show like November 2011. It didn't get going to 2012. Yeah. Seven years. I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> so he just kept going on for seven years and five months until the siege. That's the, the, the Roman siege Jerusalem. And during the siege, as he was going around the wall, he cried out, woe, woe to the city again and to the people and to the holy house. Just as he added, woe, woe to myself also, he was killed by a stone from a Roman machine. So he was crying out this warning to people seven years before they even thought anything was going to happen. They were under prosperity and peace and safety. Everything was just fine. And you got some crazy guy going, whoa, whoa, into you. It's all going to end. And so they beat him and they can't stop him. And they take him off Facebook and they can't stop him. And they delete his Twitter account and they can't stop him. And they marginalize him and they can't stop him. And the demons attack him and they can't stop him. And they can't stop him. And he keeps talking and he keeps prophesying and he keeps warning and warning. And he keeps on talking in the microphone and he keeps blah, 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 blah. And they take him before the people and the, the demons rip his body apart to the bone and he almost dies. And he keeps going, blah, warning, warning, warning. He's whoa, whoa, whoa. Then the siege happens and he's walking around going, I told you, I told you, look at the siege and woe unto me also. Then he gets hit in the head with a rock from the Roman siege machine. Wow, just a farmer. During the siege, as he was going around the wall, he cried out, woe, woe to the city again. And woe, woe to the people and to the holy house. Just as he added, woe, woe to myself. Also, that's when he was killed. If anyone thinks about these things, Josephus says, he will find that God takes care of us and shows us how to preserve ourselves. But we perish by the miseries we bring on ourselves. And when the Jews demolished the tower of Antonia, they made the temple square. I don't quite know what that means. They made the temple square. What that means. Um, I guess they squared it out. They just demolished it. Fulfilling the prophecy that the city and temple would fall once the temple was square. And I don't know what prophecy that is, but that's what Josephus says. What most helped the people understand this war now was an ambitious, 
Oh, I'm sorry. It was an ambiguous oracle found in the sacred writings. He didn't say what writing it was found in, but an ambiguous oracle found in the sacred writings. And it said about that time, one from their country should become governor of the habitable earth. And this oracle certainly meant Vespasian, who was appointed emperor while in Judea. However, no one can escape his fate, even if he sees it beforehand. So Josephus is saying the sacred writing was about Vespasian. And even though you can see it, you still can't escape it if it's your fate. All right. So here we go. We're uh, 39 minutes into the show. Let me finish up here. Titus meets with the Jews. Now that the rebels had fled into the city and the holy house was burned, the Romans brought their flags to the temple and set them up on the eastern gates, offering sacrifices to them and declaring Titus victorious with exclamations of joy. So they set up their ensigns, their flags, and now they're doing sacrifices um, to the temple. Now, I know a lot of people say, well, this is the, uh, the abomination of desolation when the Romans set up their ensigns. Well, the abomination had happened long ago when they had surrounded Jerusalem with their armies. The temple had been defiled, as I just read to you, by blood and guts, you know, years prior to it actually falling. So this was just a coup de gras. Okay. So, uh, so now the Oracle, um, I'm sorry. Uh, they brought their flags to the temple and they sacrificed to it, declaring a vict- uh, victorious um, and exclamations of joy. And those soldiers had collected so many spoils from their plundering that a pound of gold now sold for half its former price throughout Syria. They had so much Jewish gold now that the price actually went down. It wasn't rare. The Jewish rebels left in the city sent word that they would like to talk to Titus and Titus and his men stood on the western side of the temple's outer court on one side of the bridge connecting the upper uh, city to the temple. Simon and John, those were both um, rebel leaders and they stood on the other side. And anyway, there was an interpreter and they they spoke to each other and they, they had reminded the Jews that they had chosen to rebel after being fairly treated by the Roman government and by himself and he had tried on many occasions to save the city and the temple, and he treated those who left the city humanely. That's true. And now they came to him in their armor to talk of forgiveness. Still, if they would throw down their arms and surrender, he would be mild, only punishing the guilty and saving the rest for his own use. But the Jews replied that they would not surrender because they had taken an oath not to. But if he would allow it, they would take their families and go into the desert, leaving the city to him. So now they just wanted to bail, Right. Just like, uh, you know, just like the uh, church leaders of the day. They just want to bail on you when things get tough. So it made uh, Titus just furious to have defeated men. Yeah, so you have defeated men proposing terms to him like if they were victors. So he warned them uh, he would not accept no more deserters from the ranks. From then on, they would all be treated according to the rules of war. No one would be spared. So Titus gave his troops permission to plunder and burn the city. The following day, they set fire to the city archives, uh, Acra, the council house, and Ophlis. The fire spread as far as Queen Helena's palace in the middle of Acra. The same day, the sun, that's probably why we don't have other writings, right? Because um, that was their you know, their archives. The same day, the sons and brothers of Azates, the king, together with many others from the city's nobility, asked permission to surrender. 
And although he was angry with everyone in the city, Titus let them live as captives, intending to take um, Izates or whatever sons and relatives back to Rome as hostages. And the rebels took the royal palace from the Romans, killing and plundering 8,400 people had gone there with their possessions in search of refuge. Nice, nice people, right? The following day, the Romans drove the robbers out of the lower city and set everything as far as Shalom on fire. Remember, the robbers were Jews. They were the Jewish people. But they found no plunder there because the robbers had already taken everything in the upper city. Josephus continued to encourage the remaining rebels to surrender, but they dispersed themselves throughout the city roads and continued to kill everyone they caught trying to escape to the Romans. (laughs) Nice people. So they lost and if you're trying to save your life and go to the Romans to be to live, they would kill you. The only remaining stronghold for the Jewish rebels was the city's underground caverns where they hoped they could hide until the Romans left. So on August 20th, Titus decided um, the well-fortified and steep upper city could be taken. Uh, he raised banks against it. And anyway, the commanders of the Idumeans now sent ambassadors to Titus, asked him to let them surrender and live. Since much of the Jews' fighting depended on the Idumeans, Titus agreed to receive them. And anyway, this uh, other rebel, Simon, when he heard that, he killed the ambassadors of Titus, imprisoned the Idumean leaders, and had the troops watched. So they're still fighting among each other, acting crazy. And let's see, uh, it goes on. September 7th, the banks around the upper city were finished. The machines brought against the wall. As soon as the wall was first breached, the Jewish rebels fled to the upper city. They abandoned the Romans that they uh, might never have been able to take because of the strength of the upper city's towers, but that's not true because they lost everything. And anyway, the, the Romans reached the top of the upper city's wall without bloodshed, only to find no one waiting to oppose them on the other side. And they began killing those left behind, looting and burning. Although when it came to houses filled with the dead, they left them alone. Although they had respect for the dead, they had no mercy on the living. Blood ran down the narrow lanes in such quantity that it put out fires consuming many houses. That's a lot of human blood, isn't it? See, the whole city's defiled. By September 8th, the whole upper city was in flames. When Titus went to the upper city and saw the strength of the three towers, he thanked God that he hadn't been forced to try to take them. Now, that's not our God. He's, you know, he's thinking Jupiter. For he knew he couldn't have done it. Everyone imprisoned by the rebels in the upper upper city was freed, and the three towers were left standing as a monument to Titus's good fortune. Now we have the people of Jerusalem, and he ordered that those people of the city be spared. His soldiers should kill only fi- those fighting with them, you know, with arms, and should take the rest captive. The aged and the infirm were still killed, but anyone who seemed useful was locked within the walls of the court of women and his fate decided by Fronto. So they were taken captive. Many were killed and many were taken captive and dispersed, just like, you know, prophecy said. Fronto killed all those who are identified as rebellious or robbers. The tallest and most beautiful of the young men were saved for the triumphal procession. (laughs) You know what that was, right? When they went back to Rome and they go, look at these are our spoils. Everyone else over the age of 17 was sent in bonds to work the Egyptian mines. A great number were also sent into the provinces to provide amusement to the theaters. Wow, probably eaten by lions and all that stuff, right? 
Uh, those under 17 were sold as slaves. In the days it took Fronto to make these decisions, 11,000 of the Jews died from starvation. <sighs> In the days it took him to decide what he's going to do with all these people. You're going to be a slave. You're going to be eaten by lions. You're going to be entertainment. Are you going to be beautiful? And uh, I'm going to march you around. 11,000 died. The number taken captive during the whole war, seven years, was 97,000. So it was a seven-year war, folks. 97,000 dead. The number of perishing during the siege was 1.1 million. Most of them Jewish, but not from Jerusalem. Most of the victims have come to Jerusalem for Passover, been trapped there, and died from the plague and famine. Before the war, Cestius had asked the high priest to count the number celebrating the Passover feast. They counted 256,500 sacrifices, which amounted to 2,700,200 purified worshipers. Two million folks. Also in the city at that time would have been many who were impure, women and foreigners who would not partake of the feast. This vast multitude coming from remote places was encompassed by the Romans and imprisoned within the city. The number of deaths exceeded all previous destructions by God or man. This is history. Josephus is set, telling us there was 2,000 purified, 2 million, I'm sorry, 2 million purified worshipers. That doesn't include women and foreigners or children. And that the deaths exceeded all previous destructions by God or man. So anyway, as uh, these rebels, their leaders begin to starve in the caverns, this uh, one guy begged Titus for permission to surrender. And he was allowed to live as a perpetual prisoner. This other guy struggled hard, but even uh, he eventually surrendered. He was saved for the triumphal procession in Rome and then killed. And the Romans burned down the outskirts of the city and entirely demolished its walls. So Jerusalem was taken on September 8th, 70. Now remember the temple fell on August 10th, but the city itself almost a month later, September 8th, 70, had been taken five times before, six actually counting uh, Ptolemy. And this was its second destruction. Those who took the city before but preserved it were Shishak. You can read about that. The king of Egypt, Antichius, Pompey, Sosius, and Herod. Before all these, the king of Babylon captured and destroyed it 1,468 years and six months after it was built. He who first built it, he's talking about the city of Jerusalem. He who first built it was a powerful Canaanite named Melchizedek called the righteous king, which he truly was. He was the first priest of God and the second to build a temple there, changing the city's name from Salem to Jerusalem. David, the king of the Jews, took the city from the Canaanites settled his own people there until the city was demolished by the Babylonians in 477. I'm sorry, it was demolished by the Babylonians 477 years and six months after David. Between David 
and the destruction of the city by Titus were 1,179 years. Between its first building and its first destruction were 2,177 years. Amazing, huh? And then Josephus ends the, the, you know, the talk about the fall of Jerusalem with this. And this is, this is how he ends, and this is how this book ends. Neither its great antiquity, its vast riches, the spread of the people all over the earth, nor the veneration paid to it could preserve Jerusalem from destruction. And thus ended the siege of Jerusalem. And that just, it just is so haunting to end the book that way. But it also reminds me of the book of Revelation, you know, where the kings and the merchants mourned when they saw Babylon fall. Oh, amazing. So anyway, maybe, maybe next week I'll go back and read, uh, you know, the beginning of the, the, the rebellion. It is very, very interesting stuff in there about the Jewish uh, rebels and their leaders and what they did and, and the starvation and how they, you know, had to go to cannibalism. And, and it's, it really is quite, quite an amazing history. But I just wanted to start off with, you know, the Reader's Digest of the fall itself, you know, two days prior and you, you see what's happening. And then, you know, I kind of chew on it and look around and go, you know, and I, I see some of the same stuff going on. So, you know, we may be close to this Babylon falling also. All right. So with that, I'm going to say good night and we will talk to you soon on Freedom Friday. Good night.